Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. In today's episode, we are talking to Simone Abram, Professor of Anthropology at Durham University, a co-director of the Durham Energy Institute, and a researcher at the National Center for Energy Systems Integration. Corina and Maria talked to Simone about the anthropology of energy, ethics in the field of energy governance, and sustainability dilemmas for individuals and communities alike. What questions brought Simone, an engineering graduate, to anthropology? Simone reflects on her own ethnography learning process, the challenges of entering a new knowledge area, and the fresh perspectives brought about by engaging with other disciplines. We explore other questions, such as, can energy possibly have an international ethical foundation? And how to reconcile different epistemological notions in order to arrive at a common understanding? What about the balance between social inequality and sustainability measures? Simone shares her thoughts and experiences as a researcher, academic, and an individual actively engaged in community building practices. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Simone Abram, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Durham, and Maria Sialiute, my podcast co-host in The Human Show. Hi Simone, hi Maria. Hi. Hi both. Hi everyone. Yeah, Maria is here to to help me host uh, Simone uh, into this uh, episode today. So uh, we will kind of like go back and forth in the in the in the in our roles. So I want to kick us off, uh, Simone, with with a, a question that we we normally start the, the podcast with, which is tell us and our audience a little bit about your professional path so far and how has energy become your focal point. Thanks, Corinna. Thanks for the introduction. Well, gosh, it's a big question, isn't it? And uh, which bits to tell you about? Um, in a way, energy was there at the beginning and then came back later on. So um, I was thinking about this earlier today that sometimes a, a, a career is something that you imagine in the future and then make sense of in the past. So I'm not sure <laughs> at the time whether it feels like a career. Um, but anyway, I started my post-school education studying electrical engineering and working for um, a turbine generator company. So I thought I was going to have this great career as an engineer, you know, building power stations around the world or something like that. Um, and I took a four-year degree to master's level. And it sort of gradually dawned on me that um, what was interesting about power stations was the people who who were affected by them rather than the, 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 the machines themselves. And um, I decided I, I wanted to know more about that. So um, I applied to do a, a social anthropology conversion master's course um, and then got interested in all sorts of other things, did a PhD, which was actually about tourism and heritage, amongst other things. Uh, um, moved into a postdoc uh, job looking at... Um, I think the original research question was something like whether the middle classes were overrepresented in the planning system in the UK. <laughs> and then um, I found myself working in, in planning schools for, for quite a number of years. Um, and then I moved to actually, because I had a lectureship for about eight years at Sheffield University, 
uh, and then wanted to do more research, really. So I managed to get a post in research centre uh, at Leeds, what was then called Leeds Met University, which then was, um, <laughs> for various political reasons, was sort of closed down. Um, and then, as luck would have it, I bumped into um, a friend who was working at Durham University who was telling me about the Durham Energy Institute and how they wanted to set up a master's programme and, and I made some comments, I think, about, of course, having this background in engineering and he practically leapt on me and said, come and help us. And um, and I suppose when I went to study anthropology, what I wanted to do was, was find out more about how building a power station in a country that hadn't had electricity before might, might affect the people's ways of life. Um, and I always felt rather guilty that I never did that um, because I felt that having an engineering degree, I could speak engineering, if you know what I mean. And so the opportunity to go back and actually pick that up was, was I felt like a full circle. So that was a good, that was a good thing to be able to do. Mm. Yeah. By which time, of course, I've been totally overtaken by people like Tandy Winter, who, who actually did that study that I, I thought I would, I would start off doing. Oh, yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. Thank you. I uh, I was thinking to go into the second question, but actually the way you've kind of uh, made sense of your journey uh, leads me into one of the other questions that I was planning later on, which is you are engaged with uh, with um, massive subjects of this, both scholarships and application of it in the non-academic world, um, like the industry. And, and, and it seems almost like a fairy tale for an anthropologist, or at least to me. You know, it is, it is something that I, I, I desire so much to be able to, to balance those, those, those two worlds in a way that, that gives credibility to both systems and value. How do you, how do you do it? Or do you even look at yourself and your journey like that? And what advice would you have for people that are kind of wanting to walk the same, uh, the same kind of uh, path? Yeah, it's a little bit difficult to give, give advice when I feel that it was a bit, um, serendipitous. Um, I think the main, the main thing for me about, especially working with engineers, which I've really enjoyed doing, um, is to recognize that there, there is a separate language that engineers speak, which can just feel like jargon at first, but, um, and it can take some time to, to see the other set of meanings of the words that they use, because quite often engineering terms also have colloquial meanings. Um, and one, one of the, I think I published a, one of the first things I published was a book review. <laughs> Did a book review of a rather arrogant young scholars book review of a book by, um, Zon Arbund about, um, nuclear, nuclear peninsula where she'd interviewed a lot of engineers and had asked them what I thought were quite technical questions around safety issues to do with nuclear power stations. And of course they'd given her technical responses. And she found them very dissatisfying because she was after their sort of emotional response to mm. technical questions. And I thought, well, you know, if you ask a technical question, you get a technical response. So, so there's something about moving into, um, a field of knowledge that can appear every day, but actually has depths of technology or technological specialism behind it, which you sort of need to, to learn about and perhaps be a bit humble about recognizing um, the limits to what you might know. I mean, for me now, you know, my electrical engineering degree is many, many years behind me. So I'm very both rusty and out of date. But I have at least a basic 
mm-hmm. vocabulary, I suppose, to be able to communicate. And I think that, I think maybe it's a, a risk with doing this kind of work is that I think that when we talk about learning the language, we usually mean a, a you know, a foreign language, the one that we already speak. So if you go to a different country with a different language, you assume that you have to learn the language. But I think if you go into doing ethnography in a specialist area within your own area of language, then sometimes it's more difficult to recognize quite quite the amount of language that you need to spend time learning. And obviously, like in any language, learning the language doesn't mean just learning the words. It means learning the concepts and the ways of thinking and the principles of um, of knowledge and so forth. How I kind of get involved in these areas. Well, I don't feel like I'm kind of going solving the world's problems, put it that way. Um, and I suppose that since I finished my doctorate, most of my work has been almost, I feel like I've had anthropology behind me and I've been facing outwards. So most of the work I've been doing has, has been in other departments, for example, mm-hmm. um, with people who are not anthropologists. And at first it was really tough, you know, because everything you take for granted about accepted ideas and theoretical positions either wasn't appreciated or, or, or didn't really break through. And I suppose I learned and adapted to find ways to communicate ideas from anthropology that were exciting and interesting to people who, who either hadn't encountered them or hadn't seen the point of them or, or whatever it was. So it, Sometimes it felt like a lonely struggle being the anthropologist in the department, and that's not a fun place to be a lot of the time. On the other hand, it really makes you think through what's interesting here and what's valuable and um, and what you should be precious about and what you shouldn't be precious about. <laughs> uh, yeah. How to adapt, you know? Yeah, so, so I wonder then, when, when, when did anthropology um, uh, became a home again for you? Yes, well, that's the thing that happens. You see, when you're in a, in you know, when you go native in a, no, that's not fair to say. No, <laughs> if you become used to communicating around ideas in one yeah. context, yeah, 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 then I guess you start to redefine what you think the subject is. So, I mean, I kind of developed all sorts of my own ideas of what I thought anthropology was, and when I started to go back into anthropology departments, I was often a bit um, surprised. Also, in conferences, to think. Oh, are people still talking about that, or is that uh, is that what anthropology is for these people? Uh, seems to be something else for me, and I think that's probably common for most people. You know, you go into one area and you forget that the other areas continue to exist. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, having said that, I've been working with anthropologists all the way through, just not in my everyday office environment. But I'm, I've been involved with projects at Osley Anthropology Department since 2000, for example. Um, so I have had ongoing, <laughs> I haven't been a complete uh, uh, exile or anything like that. Um, it's just that I've been been used to working with people, sort of adapting the way that I talk about anthropology and think about anthropology to different contexts, I suppose. Yeah, I think that that kind of approach to the way you look at multidisciplinarity makes it seem so easy, uh, or at least to me. <laughs> I think you get used to a different Mm -hmm. set of expectations around what you can take for granted and what you can't. I mean, the first time I got a a review back saying this person's totally taken for granted what ethnography is, I thought, oh, gosh, I actually have to explain in a (laughs) grant proposal what this methodology of of ethnography actually includes. Uh, And remember that all the people reviewing your grant applications may know nothing about it. So, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing opens your eyes a bit, I suppose. 
Yeah, I, I want to take it very practical to one of your projects, which which uh, I and Maria also found quite quite interesting. You are the co-director of the Durham Energy Institute and a, a researcher at the National Center for Energy Systems Integration. Hope mm-hmm. I'm saying it correctly. That's right. Yeah. Where you work on bringing anthropological methods and perspectives to the processes of energy modeling. So, um, you know, I found it, I found that fascinating because on one side, you know, modeling really does rely on a certain harsh, hard categorization or kind of like really embracing this, this, this rigid structures of meaning making. Whereas for me, anthropology was more about, um, the opposite of that. So, uh, the project is nearing the end and I wanted to ask you, how has that journey been for you? And, and what were the biggest challenges in the processes of translating your anthropological perspectives and working alongside in that space of modeling? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, it's been a really interesting project. It's been incredibly difficult for a number of reasons. Not only are we dealing with diff- completely different epistemological approaches between what people refer to as quantitative and qualitative research, but even between the different models themselves, there are really enormous gaps and differences and, and um, differences not just in method, but also concept and approach. So um, it's been in some ways probably quite a typical journey in that at the beginning of the project, um, there was a lot of talk about uh, how to get human data into the models. And gradually we managed to shift the conversation to be about how you bring together different kinds of knowledge So we explored a few different areas earlier on, thinking about things like agent-based modeling, which is a way to include patterns of people's behavior into modeling processes. But pretty quickly, it became clear that that's very, very limited. And I think one of the really interesting things for me about that project, I mean, I think it's partly to do with the people who are involved, the fact that many of the engineers involved in the project have already worked with social sciences, so they are quite aware of the limitations um, of what's possible within the given methods. Um, so what we tried to work towards was a way of thinking about how you use models, how you describe their limitations, and how, how you analyze their use. So one of the things that I'm wanting to pursue beyond the project is to look at what happens when you take a sort of theoretical model of a system and do what most people involved in the project seem to want to do, which is called decision support, uh, that you use a model to help decision makers make decisions. And like who those decision makers are <laughs> is often very vague and what constitutes a decision Mm-hmm. is also, I mean, how do you describe what that is? So so one of the things I'm hoping to do next is to actually try and pin that down on the one side, get a bit more information from the different modelers about who they who they have in mind when they're talking about decision makers. And on the other, actually follow some of the models through into whether it's policy making or industry or, or investment decisions or whatever it is and say, um, yeah, how are models used in those contexts? So I was really inspired by a colleague of mine at Durham called Wendy Parker, who's a philosopher, and she's been writing about um, the use of models in uh, climate, um, well, the, the way that climate models are put together, basically. Mm-hmm. And she did some really interesting work around the kind of ethical judgments that are involved when you design and, and use a model, um, pointing out that things like, you know, in a climate change model, if you you have to make a decision about your thresholds, 
what constitutes a meaningful threshold in the model and what constitutes the range of um, of a particular factor that you want to include. And all of those sorts of decisions are actually ethical as well as practical, and they may have long-term consequences in what your climate model can tell you. And I really think the very same thing goes for energy system models as well. So mm-hmm. whether whether you're modeling um, patterns of energy demand or whether you're trying to um, model the way that cables respond to different temperatures in the weather, you're still all the time making judgments about what's an important factor, what can I ignore, where mm-hmm. shall I set a threshold. And, and these sorts of things, I think, can have pretty profound consequences when it comes to making decisions about how the system should be changed in the future, especially now when we're, we're, I think we're at a really dramatic moment in the development of energy systems globally, mm-hmm. um, with a, with not just the kind of political pressure and climate pressure, but, but really rapid changes in, in technologies that are pretty exciting. And, and, you know, they suddenly that, I think in the development of, you know, if you look at the history of, of technology, um, one of the things that I think science and technology studies has shown pretty well is that you, you get kind of long periods of relative calm and then a change which opens up all the things that you took for granted. Yeah. And well, I think we're in one of those moments now where a lot of the things that we assume about what's right, about you know what, what technologies can do, for example, is suddenly open again and could change quite dramatically. And I think that's true among scientists and engineers as well. Um, that this kind of moment of everything could change and a lot of the assumptions we had may no longer hold. So it's a pretty exciting exciting moment, I think. Yeah. I I love that you mentioned ethics and energy because that that really kind of, um, at least ethics, is it's it's on a subject that I found incredibly fascinating. So it it leads me a bit into my next question, which is you have co-founded an international network on ethics energy. And... um, how do you see that, that the space of internationality around energy ethics? Do you consider energy or is it possible for energy to, to be a foundation on which this type of consensus can be achieved? Or how do you approach diversity within this context? And yeah, um, yeah, I'm really curious about that. Sure. I, mean, I think there are lots of different approaches to energy ethics. Um, and there's quite a few people working on this now in, in anthropology. There's a very interesting work on things like corporate ethics mm-hmm. and um, the sort of moral narratives that people construct around their actions um, yeah. um, that you probably know about. But what we were trying to do with that network, which was a little bit different, it's again, it's interdisciplinary. It's primarily um, with philosophers and uh, philosophers of practical ethics as well um, in the Netherlands and Germany particularly. Um, rather than sort of set out a new morality around energy, it's as well. I suppose my aim with the with the work that we've been doing and is is rather to think about or develop ways to think about ethics. So it's more about how do we think about ethics related to energy. So we had quite a lot of discussions about this. Actually, we're not there to tell people what's ethical and what's not ethical. Although some members of the group would like to do that. Instead, in a way, what we want to do is, is set out um, ways to enable people to think more clearly about what ethics are. And I think that, you know, philosophical tra- traditions in ethics are quite different from anthropological ones as well. So what we consider to be the basis of ethical thinking is, can be quite different. And, and really, the, the network was set up to explore those and see if we could find some kind of meeting ground. 
And I guess it surprised me, perhaps that's because I hadn't worked enough with philosophers in the past, but I wasn't really expecting them. I wasn't expecting the, the way that we work to be so different, mm-hmm. to be so difficult to communicate across it. And actually four of us, two philosophers, two anthropologists, although I suppose one anthropologist and one SCS scholar, um, spend a good few months working on a paper about epistemic values and non-epistemic values. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which has suddenly seem very technical. And actually most of the time we spent uh, trying to work out what even we thought a paper should look like, uh, and what kind of language we use and how we relate it to, you know, I think... Anthropologists often use very narrative forms, don't they? Whereas the philosophers were much more kind of A, B, and C, and list, listing and points, and a much more kind of formal argument, I suppose. Um, so even to that extent, it was it was challenging, but really interesting. I, I don't have any kind of um, sort of moral standpoint around universal ethical positions. Although at the same time, I'm involved in a project on socially inclusive. Uh, decarbonisation and, and writing, uh, co-writing briefing papers on a just transition and so forth. Um, so I guess I am at the same time also making, m- taking moral positions, aren't I? Yeah. I don't sort of <laughs> tend to think of myself as doing so. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of implicit morality in anthropology, isn't there, about um, mm. um, being equitable and, and justice and so forth. Um, that I think is, is it's pretty difficult to articulate in a non. How can I put this? It's quite difficult to articulate a, a, a set of arguments that are separate from one's own position without appearing apolitical. So you need to kind of take your position, but be able to to articulate it in a broader analysis, I suppose. So it's yeah. always a bit of a balance of trying to do those things. But yeah. it was um, there's always temptation to like make yourself feel better by taking a moral high ground isn't there yeah oh I'd, I'd love to ask you so many questions about this but I'm, I'm really I'm really worried of our time and I'd like to uh, I'm probably digging go. myself into a hole so much but it's a good time to change the subject <laughs> yeah this, this podcast could be actually a whole podcast just about this ethic, uh, ethics yeah. and, and these different projects that you work around the concepts of ethics and morality uh, but um Yeah, I, I just wanted, because for our listeners, your other type of work in the space of sustainability, it, I, I'm sure it will be equally fascinating. So I wanted to hand it over to Maria to kind of lead us through uh, the next part of, of our podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it might be a good time. We were talking about philosophical basis. <laughs> And so you were working on a project. Uh, on a research project called Arctic en- Encounters. I believe the project takes uh, Timothy Morton's idea of dark ecology as its as its uh, basis. Uh, so it's a multidisciplinary project connecting artists and academic partners with the aim of rethinking the concepts of nature and ecology, which is, uh, of course, big uh, Yeah, a lot to think about. And I was wondering, what was your takeaway from this reflection on our Anthropocene? Yeah, thanks. Well, um, Arctic Encounters was um, an international project funded by the Humanities in the European Research Area between 2000 and 2000, 2013 and 16. Um, and as part of it, um, 
our Norwegian colleagues set up a partnership with Timothy Morton's project. So we had a joint exhibition and some workshops with that. So it wasn't really the founding for the Arctic Encounters per se. Really what Arctic Encounters started off looking at was uh, the way that um, the way that people think about the Arctic, the way that it's represented, and particularly the way that an idea of the Arctic is promoted in tourism and how far that is from what the Arctic is as a lived experience. So um, my part of the project was primarily looking at the way that travel writers um, write about the Arctic and, and represent it. And in order to do that, I had to learn to be a travel writer. That's that is an observation, right? So... <laughs> Um, so I joined some press trips, you know, go with the press trip to, with the PR company to visit the Faroe Islands, for example, um, and, and see what kind of tales are told. And on the other side, we're working with people who, who live in those places to tell us, you know, different stories about, about what it's, what the Arctic means for them. And partly because, this idea of the Arctic has become so significant in recent years. I mean, obviously, it's been around for centuries and has had different um, political and um, sort of fantastical meanings over the centuries. Um, but it's really interesting to try and throw that into different context. So I suppose we were, in a way, demystifying this rather um, fantasy notion about the ice world of the north i mean it, and it was fun in a way to to even to share photographs of arctic regions in the summer and people being shocked that there isn't any ice there you know uh, which just goes to show how deeply embedded this sort of frozen north image is in particularly in western cultures um and this kind of notion of this this um sort of place beyond uh <laughs> beyond civilization i suppose is the way that people think about it um, I think one of the things that was very striking to me during that project is that, um, in fact, at one point it became very apparent. We joined um, a Society of Travel Writers event in Reykjavik and to talk to them about the fact that tourism industry in the far north is often premised on promising people a sight of the Arctic before it melts. And yet by promoting that very kind of tourism, you raise the levels of pollution and make that problem worse. And yet if you're a travel writer, your whole raison d'etre is about other people to travel. So how do you even imagine something like ecotourism if it involves getting on a plane and contributing to carbon emissions or, or taking a cruise in a massively polluting monster liner, you know? And what was interesting in a way was that when we talked about these things at the at the writers' conference, there was this sort of moment of of both release and horror because many of them they knew it in their hearts that this was a a fundamental contradiction, and yet they they felt almost unable to talk about it. So actually, the session at which we talked about it was almost cathartic, but it. I mean, now, of course, it's really ironic. After COVID, it looks so, things look so different because all that transport and travel has disappeared. But you'll notice in the, in the media that people have started travel writing again and they have started promoting destinations and, and holiday companies and so forth. 
And it's a bit like the bounce back after COVID lockdown with, with transport, isn't it? For a moment, people think, oh, life could be different. But the same forces come back into play pretty soon afterwards because actually nothing underlying, you know, the underlying mechanisms of, of these industries hasn't really shifted yet. Yeah, you asked me for a takeaway, <laughs> takeaway from that project. Um, it's difficult, isn't it, when you spend three years working on a project to come up with a little summary. It's like saying, what's your thesis about? I think there was a lot, there was a lot that came out of that project and, and it was, um, for me, it was about the way that, um, sort of narrative industries function and promote particular ways of seeing the world. And that, that, that's very shifted. And as a follow-up to that, it's almost probably impossible to reconcile development and sustainability. But how do you reconcile this in your personal life? As in, how, how to be an ethical tourist? Yeah, I've always been a really rubbish tourist, actually. <laughs> I'm, a tourist. I'm really bad at going on holiday. I hate package holidays and all that kind of thing. So I'm not very good at that particular thing. So when I go on holiday, it's usually to visit friends. Um, more significantly, probably what I've ended up, you know, if I go abroad, it's usually, if I'm on holiday, it's usually because I've had to go somewhere for work and stay on afterwards. But of course, you know, over the years, I've been increasingly wondering how I can cut down on that kind of travel, especially cut down on flight travel, uh, find alternatives and so forth. And up until quite recently, that's been quite difficult because um, you don't always have the time to travel slowly and still achieve the demands that your job is throwing at you. But I think one of the things that's happened now is that we've sort of been given an allowance to do that. You know, we've been given permission that because of the lockdown, to say, okay, I'm not going to travel anywhere for a year and I'm not going to go back to my old habits. I'm going to say, I'm not going to fly for work. In fact, some of my colleagues had already started doing that. I'm afraid I hadn't been quite strong or confident enough to do that. And if you're working in Norway on a joint project, it's quite difficult to say, <laughs> I'm not going to go there. <laughs> um, but I think, I think this is a great moment for us all to really think a bit more deeply about our travel practices and which of them are really necessary and which of them are just for vanity because we want to feel important by flying to different countries. So it's, I mean, it's fantastic that we're able to do this online, for example. And, you know, I know that not, I know that putting everything online hasn't been massively satisfying for everybody, but so much more of what we were doing can be done online perfectly well enough that I think we've been given a, an opportunity to, to rethink and reprioritize. Um, so when you ask what it means to be an ethical tourist, I suppose it means to try and do it without raising your carbon emissions. <laughs> and that's a tough one. You've also worked yeah. a lot on decarbonization of the economy, and uh, which is, again, a super difficult topic. Have you come up with an answer to the question of how to achieve this balance between strict measures and social inequalities being dealt with at the same time? Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I've done that much on decarbonizing yet. Um, this, the Include Center for Socially Inclusive Decarbonization is still in its early days, really. Um, and what we're looking at in particular is how local authorities can make change. Because I think um, 
obviously the, the situation for local government is very different in different countries. And in the UK, it's particularly beleaguered, especially if you compare with somewhere like Norway, where local authorities can really do things. They can actually, they have quite a lot of power at the local level. And they're closer to people's everyday lives than a central government is. So there's an opportunity to do smaller interventions that can make bigger, bigger differences. But I think uh, one of the frustrating things is that, you know, the answer's always got to be to discuss things and get as many people involved in the discussion as possible. But local government is often the worst place to do that because they're working within limitations that mean that a lot of things people want to talk about are sort of out of bounds. They're not, it's not the right forum to discuss those things. And, you know, funnily enough, that's something that we, we talked about, what, sort of 20, 30 years ago when we we're doing work on local planning. Is that you have a meeting about, pla- about a plan, a forward plan. People come along and they want to talk about the maintenance of the roads or the street lights or something. And they have to be told, no, this isn't a meeting about that. This is a meeting about planning forward, not maintenance. And that same scenario comes up again and again. You want to have a meeting about decarbonizing the transport system. People will come and talk about dust timetables. It's quite difficult because, you know, maybe they haven't found another arena in which to talk about dust timetables. So maybe you do need to spend time doing that. But then it becomes a very, very time consuming and hence expensive. So the main question is, how do we actually listen to people when policy is being designed? And, you know, there are a hundred different solutions to that, but I don't think one is right and one is wrong. There are many, many ways to do this, and we have to keep using many ways and keep being frustrated by it because it is frustrating. But that's democracy, right? It's frustrating. But if we give up on it, I don't think many of us would like the alternative. Keep talking, I suppose. (laughs) And doing, of course. I um... (laughs) am. Just to interject here, because I lived in New Zealand for, for a few years and, and I was part of, of, of working alongside like Maori businesses. Um, and, and I was, I was fascinated with the way they looked at commercial development. That was, uh, that come, come, comes strongly from the way they look at the world as community and, and the, uh, the footprint that they live as community. So I, I, with the, my first kind of business plan meeting with, with one of those companies, they, they've built this business plan for, five generations. Hmm. So now the, like the length through which they look at, you know, we are doing this to benefit these, these, this amount of generations ahead of us. And it needs to have also this impact on the environment because we are, we have a duty towards the environment as inhabitants here. So I think, I think ideology and, you know, how you look at, at a deeper level as, as your role in society as a species to a certain extent can also play a role in how you engage with this type of processes, right? Absolutely. Um, one of the things I do outside work is that I'm, I've been involved with a local development trust for 20 years or something. And, um, you know, the neighbourhood I live in in Sheffield in the UK is very, very mixed. Um, so there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of quite severe deprivation and there's quite a lot of, I wouldn't say enormous wealth, but com- comfortable middle classes um, but that means that you have really also pretty big class differences. Mm. So they can often act against each other. Um, and I think the, the, the danger is that you, you find one answer to a question and assume that's the answer. But actually there will always be many answers. Um, so yes, you might have a company who's, who's, or a family business that's been here for five generations and you've also got a corporation trying to achieve something and you've got people who, who want to just 
sit on their allotment and cultivate the soil. Um, and a local authority who's got to make some kind of benefit decisions and um, you know, a social housing organisation who are who are trying to keep people off the breadline and somebody worrying about the drug dealers around the corner. You know, our societies are very, very mixed these days, so there isn't a kind of one answer to mm-hmm. the problem. We've got to be open for, for multiple answers, I think, and multiple narratives. And really, anthropologists should be good at that, right? Listening to different stories and trying to make sense of them together. But But I think translating between them can often be a pretty big challenge. I don't know whether we have answers to that. Do you? I was thinking about what you're saying because you it, it, you really raise in my head a lot of other thoughts, and I think that the first thought that I thought is that you know the the, the the this process of translation for me personally sits within as a responsibility within each of us, right? So if it's in this kind of like um, in the community ties, in like in how you with your neighbor, with your colleagues, with your friends, with your family, within your social circle, you are making sense of each other's worldview and creating some form of joint narratives. And, and that's a very friction-driven process. Yeah. But for for me, that that that's where it kind of sits. One of my biggest challenges as an anthropologist is when companies or or social groups delegate the role of that friction to an anthropologist to an expert role can you, you know because, and i think there's something phenomenological about the process of going through that friction and i think the anthropologist can be a guide for a company or for a group in 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 going and solving that friction but if you take it over then then the result and the recommendation that you bring to the table will not necessarily have the same impact. So, yeah, that's, yeah. Be- that's beautifully articulated. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, it's like saying, it's a bit like saying if you're a teacher with your students, um, you can't learn for your students, can you? You learn with no. them. They have to go through that difficult experience of, of working it out for themselves. You can Hopefully you, you help them in doing that, but you can't do it for them. Yeah, and, 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 and that's, that's, that's a bit the difficulty that, that I, when I went out of university and went into applied anthropology, I felt somehow cheated out of some form of courses that I felt I missed or I didn't have or I wished I'd had. Hmm. Which is, how can you be a, um, a host or a, or a guide through that process of sense making for others rather than you doing that process and then bringing it to another group? I, I felt I, I didn't necessarily had the skills on how to do that, so I had to experiment with them. But uh, yeah, really, I, th- I think that's a really important observation. I think a lot of universities are very poor at doing that because not that many members of staff have had that experience. So unless we include the people with that experience in showing us how to do it, then then it's going to be difficult to to pass it on to students and show them different ways of of working that aren't the same as being a any other kind of consultant, for example. Because I really do think that anthropologists have a different set of skills, um, equally valuable. But we have got some great um, experiences and, and examples, especially from, from Norwegian consultancies, anthropological consultancies. I think they were pretty mm-hmm. early out with some of those ideas. So there's definitely a case for um, for finding better ways to teach that. So, yeah. 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 Uh. Simone, I think we are almost at the end of this conversation. We are uh, nearing the end of our timeline. And, um, yeah, I, I've, this is one of the few times where I wished we'd had a two-hour podcast before <laughs> I'm not sure the <laughs> listeners will agree with you, but it's been very great, very good fun to talk to you. I'd love to continue the conversation another time. Yes, same here. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. 
And thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.